Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, great pyramids, spectacular monuments and other superstructures were identified and celebrated as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. More recent Magnificent Sevens have included other man-made marvels such as Machu Picchu, the Taj Mahal or wonders of nature such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the comedian, pod and broadcaster, Angela Barnes. Angela's appeared regularly on Mock the Week, as well as uh, Stand Up for the Week, Russell Howard's Good News and Radio 4's News Quiz. So obviously very well used to finding the funny in current events. But she also created a radio series about the Cold War and co-hosts a podcast called We Are History, which allows her to take the same approach to days gone by as well. Uh, now, Angela, you're, you're well known to be one of the uh, hardest working stand-ups in the comedy <laughs> business. Are you, are, you nat- are you naturally industrious in big demand or just making hay while the sun shines? Exactly making hay while the sun shines. That always makes me laugh, that statistic. I think there was one year where they counted up all the miles that we travelled on tour and I came out to be the hardest working comedian in the country, or the third hardest working, I think it was. And when my agent phoned me to tell me, it was one o'clock in the afternoon and I was still in my pyjamas. And I just, (laughs) I don't feel like the hardest working comedian in the country, but sure, if that's what they want to say, then that's great. (laughs) Well... You were still in your pyjamas because you'd been working the, the night before and the ten nights before that, and you were catching breath before starting again that evening, obviously. Obviously, that was it, Clive, obviously. I think, you know what it's like, we're we're essentially freelancers, and I'm I'm still at that stage in my career where I'm scared to say no to anything because I think they won't ask me again. So, um, yeah, it's very much making hay while the sun shines, and uh, but as I get older, that's definitely slowing down. <laughs> And uh, just one other point I was going to just investigate for a moment, because I I, I do remember that you, before you were a comedian, you had what you might call a proper job, uh, (laughs) or jobs maybe, working in in the the area of mental health, social care, uh, that sort of thing, as well as running a comedy club. Uh, So does that, again, does that inform your approach to work when it comes to standing on stage uh, getting laughs it's uh, it's 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 work but it's not perhaps the daily grind or the distressing work that might come with uh, you know dealing with uh, you know unfortunate lives absolutely i mean there's, there's definitely a history of uh, you know you've got joe brand and other people that end up in comedy that have come from working in mental health or working in healthcare full stop and i think it's because you do have to have a certain outlook on life you do have you know when you're working with people that are in crisis every day if you didn't have a sense of humor about it you wouldn't be able to get through the day you know so I think there's a reason we're drawn to to comedy from that background um and and 
yeah, I mean, I, the, the fact that I get to do this as a job now, I still pinch my... I was quite late when I started compared to a lot of people. You know, I did my first stand-up comedy open spot when I was 33. And so I'm still, you know, can't quite believe mm. that I'm allowed to do this and get paid for it. But here we are. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I but I mentioned in passing there, you were running a comedy club in your spare time. So had you harboured long-term ambitions to, uh, to, to be a comedian yourself while booking others and, you know, seeing how well or badly they were doing? Well, I think, yeah, those ambitions were there, but I don't think I realised they, they were sort of dormant in me. And I think because I was a, a kind of working class woman there weren't that many of us about doing comedy on television you know that you have victoria wood and joe brand and that was about it and so it never really occurred to me that it was something i could do it was something that clever boys did you know when i was growing up and um and then i started running comedy clubs because i just loved watching it and my dad was a big comedy fan and he would watch it with me and he used to say to me why don't you have a go why don't you get up there and i'd be like don't be stupid that's not for me and um and it was when my dad sadly passed away quite suddenly in 2008 and that's when I thought do you know what life's short maybe I should give this a go and uh and here we are yeah no, he, yeah he, he was quite young when he died but you um uh, that that's interesting you only a that you got encouragement for your your father not all parents want to encourage their their children to go into show business you know <laughs> music or comedy come to that um, and, and sadly, you only got going once he was no longer there to see it, which is, uh, I, I don't know if that's distressing or, or, or some sort of comfort. that You think, well, I have done something that he suggested in the well, end. Well, yeah, a bit of both, I think, Clive, because, yeah, it's really sad when, you know, I'm doing things on TV or I'm, you know, doing tour shows or whatever. And I just think, oh, how much he would be loving this, you know, how much he would love yeah. to be seeing this. And it makes me really sad that he never got to see it. Um, I never got to see me really be happy doing what I'm doing, you know. Um, but the other side of it is maybe I wouldn't be doing it if he was still here. So maybe that's his gift to me, you know. He yes. left us too young, but so uh, that's what came out of it, if you like. So, yeah, it's a it's sort of mixed bag of feelings on it, really. Of course, he did, uh, he did live on in your comedy uh, act um, because uh, as, as many relations of comedians do but uh he, he does sound like an extraordinary person i, I don't want to you know make, make go over all that again but he he, <laughs> he ran a sex shop in great yarmouth or or i suspect the sex shop in great yarmouth, <laughs> yarmouth and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah he was um i think what people refer to him as a character a lot of the time he was one mm. of those um you know he wasn't he was a great dad my dad um and and it's funny because he was a swinger he rang a set shop he, he you know had all these facets to him but to me he was just my dad and he was actually quite I was his little princess you know he's quite prudish when it came to me but um yeah he was he was fairly liberal parenting I think I can say right but he didn't encourage you to go into the the sex shop <laughs> sex shop business or or the swinging I, but I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I think he would have encouraged me if that had been my choice. Um, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't forced upon me, shall we say? Okay. All right. Let's let's get on with your wonders of the world. I think we've we've let's sketched that in uh, quite. That. A... <laughs> we've got quite. A... But uh, you know, the people's background, uh, especially in the way comedy is done these days, inevitably intrudes and inevitably Ooh. forms part of the act. Uh, in almost every case, but but what is your first wonder? Has it got anything to do with your upbringing, or where you were, where you were born, or where you lived, or what? Sort of. Well, my first wonder—it's a big one, really—but it's just the sea. 
Um, I find mm. I wasn't brought up near the sea. I was brought up in Kent, so I was never far from the sea. I was brought up in Maidstone in Kent. Um, but the sea was where Which we Which is went. not a coastal town. It's a, Not a coastal the, the, town. Maidstone no. is not a coastal town. In case people don't know the, the setup, yeah. it's not like uh, Deal or, or any no. of those, uh, you know, actual seaside places. It's on a river. No. But we were, yeah, it's on the River Medway, but we were never far from the city. You know, it was only an hour to get to the coast and we would go there. That was one of my dad's favourite things to do. So my parents divorced when I was young. And so I would see my dad on um, Sundays usually. And that's what we would do is we would just get in the car and drive to the coast. It was a cheap day out. He never had much money, but, you know, we could get to the coast. And his favourite thing was to be at the seaside in the winter. Um, he loved a sort of bleak seaside town and the rule was that I wasn't allowed to get back in the car until I got my feet wet in the sea however cold it was whatever okay. time of year it was I would go for a paddle and and so the sea for me is just where you go to have a nice time and even now so I now live in Brighton and I think I, I studied at Sussex University I came to Brighton to study um, and I think I, that was in me that I just needed to be by the sea and I think what the sea does, it's a really good reminder to us that we're not the boss of the planet, you know, that it's just there. Mm -hmm. It's massive. It can cause problems if you don't respect it. And it's just it's good to remind us human beings that we think that we're in charge, that actually we're not. And there's great bodies of water are there to remind us of that. And there's something as well, I think, about being on the coast for some, I, I've got no sense of direction, Clive. I get lost in my own house. You know, I'm one of these people who yeah. just... I, every day it's like when you wake up you don't know what, which way you're facing that's me all day long but when I'm at the seaside when I'm by the sea I know where I am it's a really good way to orientate yourself mm. you know to know which way you're facing I know where south is if I can see the water so um, yeah there's just something I find calming about being in the water I love swimming in the sea um, and, and so yeah coming to live in Brighton I get to do that every day you know we're uh, recording this in a heat wave and yesterday I spent pretty much all day in the sea you know so it's um yeah it's a big part of my life so paddling in the sea swimming in the sea um I've, since you've got a poor sense of direction I'm assuming you don't go out much in boats or at least not on your own because <laughs> you do need a pretty own. good sense of direction <laughs> yeah no I like to, I like to watch boats I'm not a, I'm not a fan of being in boats very much I can get a bit seasick but um I like to just be in the sea myself that's the yeah Yes, well, it's an interesting selection. Then I, 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 you know, gather the link with your father and being taken to the seaside. Did you have sort of fish and chips and 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 stuff like that? Was that, was that all part of the experience? Sort of relaxed dining. It was. Well, we used to take picnics, so we know. You know, I don't want to do the old poor me, but we didn't have a lot of money, so you know, to go out and buy fish and chips was quite an expense. So my my nan would make us sandwiches, uh, which would be lovely and sweaty by the time we got them to the seaside you know once they've been in the car for a couple of hours and so just sort of sweaty sandwiches and and bags of crisps and sitting on the pebbles or on the sand or and just yeah just looking at the sea and being in the sea and splashing about i'm sorry we're, we're almost becoming like the uh, the yorkshireman in uh, the i know we've got to be sketch, really careful you know, about fish and chips look, fish and luxury chips. <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you want a nan to make you sandwiches <laughs> but but it's but it's uh, it's a sort of holiday place and an agreeable place. But you're not involved in fishing yourself or going in boats. Uh, it's a contemplative thing that the sea makes it as your one of your wonders of the world. 
Yeah, I mean, this might sound a bit strange, Clive, but I actually am, I've got quite a strong fish phobia. It's called ichthyophobia. And I, although I love swimming in the sea, I can, this is what I love about British seasides is the sea is so murky, I can tell my brain that there's definitely no fish in there. Even though I know there are, oh. I can't see them. Whereas if I swim in the Mediterranean or somewhere, I'm not so keen because I can see yeah. the fish and then I have to get out. Well, if you go to, um, you know, you put a snorkeling mask on or something like that in good, you know, good amounts of seaside, you can see hundreds of fish that you don't realise you've been swimming amongst. So yeah. perhaps I shouldn't tell you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like to live in, in blissful <laughs> ignorance about, I know they're there, but as long as I can't see them, I can convince my, my brain that oh. they're not. <laughs> What's your second wonder? So my second wonder, it's a book called... Uh, so it's quite specific that it's one book, but it's called Stasiland yeah. by um, Anna Funder. And the reason I've chosen this is Stasiland's a really good example of a book that is what I call like a really accessible history book. It's, um, it's about the uh, sort of East German regime, really, in the 20th century in Germany and in, uh, you know, the... East German Democratic Republic and it's about the Stasi which were the secret police and um, and she's an Australian author Anna Funder and what she did was she she put classified ads in newspapers to contact ex-Stasi men and she interviewed them and then she also gathered these stories of resistance really from the East German people during that period and so what I love about history is when, when we I was at school, it was very much learning about kings and queens and it was very dry history. And that never really appealed to me. I didn't think I liked history because I could never really see where history stopped and fairy tales began, you know? I was, you you mm. sort of go, oh, right, okay, King John was real, Princess and the Pea wasn't. Okay, but in my head, they were all, you know, these sort of fairy tale figures that weren't real. Whereas to hear stories from people in my living memory um you know i find that really exciting and much more engaging and so i i sort of developed a slight obsession with 20th century history really i the i think the berlin wall it came down on my birthday november the 9th uh, 1989 was my 13th birthday All right. and i remember it being in the news and i remember it being such a big event obviously and I just wanted to know everything about what was happening. Did at you that feel time. it overshadowed your birthday, or did you see it as like <laughs> a present from the world to you? That uh, for that moment, that was one of those very optimistic moments in time, wasn't it? It was. It was great. The celebrations. It felt like David Hasselhoff was singing just for me, Clive. You know, that's part of that <laughs> whole celebration. And it was. I was learning German at school at the time, and so you know, our German teacher oh. was obviously telling us all about it, and and I just found it really. Um, fascinating and then it was about I don't know it must have been about seven years ago maybe I read this book Stasiland by Anna Funder and it's such a great example of this accessible history and it was from there really that planted the seed that I I'd never studied history I never did it uh, a level or university anything like that so um, it sort of planted this seed that I wanted to learn more about history and, and that's really where this idea for having a history podcast then came from which I do with John O'Farrell um, yes. and so this book was really the start of, of, of getting to that point where I now have a sort of reasonably successful history podcast 
Well, I was just listening to your podcast uh, in readiness for doing this one. Uh, and um, mm. the listeners may not know, but you know, John O'Farrell's an old friend of mine. Uh, and it's a very yeah. jolly um, discussion. I mean, that's the point of it. It's sort of a lighthearted look at history. But the, the one I was listening to this morning uh, was about uh, the witch trials or the witch oh, yeah. uh, executions, specifically in Scotland worldwide. And as I think you make the point, uh, I think generally about your podcast, but certainly on that one, we're supposed to be making a cheery one, but this is about people being sort of torn from their homes, uh, tortured, and then yeah. a good many of them uh, executed by having been strangled and then burnt. Uh, so there was there wasn't much jollity in the in the basic. <laughs> Not a story. lot of comedy to have out of that. No, I mean I think the way we we sort of pitch it is it's a it's a light hearted. It's it's two friends who are history nerds talking about something they've learned about and and quite often that's yeah. how we choose the episodes you know one of us will have read a book about something we go oh did you know about this John and sometimes there'll be you know much more well-known things like we did an episode on Vlad the Impaler or we did the Profumo affair things that people think they know everything about you know and then so we say our sort of strap line yeah. for the podcast is we read the history books so you don't have to so you know yeah. we'll read about it we'll do the research and then we'll chat about it in a sort of two friends down the pub talking about it sort of way but like you say yeah obviously some a lot of history is violent and dramatic and horrific and so you have to have some deference to that and there is um, a, a sort of you have to find that balance between when to make the gags and when to just tell the story um, and I, yes. I hope we tread that line pretty well I think no uh, uh, definitely uh, <laughs> The one that did strike me, which uh, I suppose it was just accidental, but it worked. I don't know if you listen to it as it goes out, but uh, you were talking about obviously saying, well, you, many of these women were just uh, people, you know, perhaps getting on a bit, uh, uh, but knew about plants and things and, and got the suspicions of people. And it was women uh, picked on. And then the advert that came in uh, after that moment was for a product, a herbal product uh, for dealing with the menopause and the ancient. No so I don't way. know whether the advertiser thought that this is this is just the point to advertise <laughs> uh, herbal re herbal remedies to the, uh, let's say, getting older woman. <laughs> I had no idea about that because they put the ads in after, and so we have no idea. No, what, I know. That's brilliant. I know. Oh, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> we had a we had a less fortunate one on on this podcast once. We uh, Paul Sinner. I don't know if you know Paul Sinner. He's a, I do. Who's yeah. a, a chaser and a comedian and a doctor and everything. And his was a, this is a fascinating, if I may say so, discussion or him telling us about his life. Uh, but along the way, he only seemed to have one regret. Uh, he'd, he'd some stops and starts and doing different things. One regret: he, he'd been addicted to gambling uh, for about twelve years, and uh, that was in a dull part of his life. And he'd put that behind him. And there were several adverts around this podcast and they were all from um, betting companies. So oh, I'd presumably no. they hadn't uh, they hadn't worked it out quite as well as your herbal <laughs> remedy uh, company who had. <laughs> oh dear. We had in our history podcast, uh, if people don't know who John O'Farrell is, he's, um, I think it's fair to say he's slightly left of centre and, uh, you know, a sort of keen campaigner for the Labour Party. And then we found out about six episodes in that the it was the telegraph being advertised during all of our episodes so john put a stop to that um but we i loved it the the history podcast is such a little passion project of ours and it's um you know i didn't know john at all before we started doing it i just followed him on twitter and he'd been to see one of my edinburgh shows so he knew sort of who i was 
And I just contacted him on Twitter one day and said, um, I really want to do a history podcast. I love your, because John had written sort of funny history books. I said, I really just wondered mm. if you'd be interested in doing it with me. You know, I understand you're probably too busy, etc. And apparently he asked his daughter, who, you know, is in her 20s, said, should I do this? And uh, Lily said, yes, you should, Dad. <laughs> and here we are. And now we love right. it, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really fun thing to do. Well, it's an interesting general point as well. And I've had this discussion with all sorts of people who make, you know, history television programmes or radio podcasts, write books. Is And it's what you mentioned along the way there. A lot of people come away from school thinking, well, I wasn't interested in that. I, it was it was learning the dates of kings or battles or uh, it didn't seem to come alive. And yet mm. a lot of people love watching a, a, a good television documentary that, OK, it's usually about one of the wives of Henry VIII, but all those mm. periods of history that they get you know gone over again and again. But people uh, come to it later in life. And I just wonder why it is that uh, the spark of interest does not catch fire at school with uh, so many people who come to it later I think it's a lot to do with it just not feeling very relatable you know when you're at school you're not learning about ordinary people or certainly we weren't learning about the experience of ordinary people during these periods you know you were learning about Mm. um kings and queens and and you know politicians and and things that just didn't feel very accessible or how did that affect the people just trying to live their lives you know and I think that's why I came into it very much from um finding out about sort of stuff within living memory really you know because I'm in my mid-40s now and you get to an age where suddenly you know kids in history lessons at school are learning about things that you remember you know I remember being absolutely devastated oh, to find yes. out that 9-11 was on the A-level syllabus you know and you go oh my god I was in my 20s when that happened <laughs> like that's and um <laughs> you know things like that and so suddenly these things that this idea of history is something that's real suddenly and I I mean I'm still very much sort of uh my focus is on 20th century history that's what I find really fascinating stuff that is in my grandparents living memory should we say there's people you can still talk to about things that happened and whereas Mm. John John quite likes to go further back I always say John's there to drag me back to the dark ages in the podcast but in more ways than one I'd say but (laughs) Um, you know, he likes to, he loves talking about things like the Black Death and real medieval history is his passion. So I think that's why we work well together because otherwise. Yeah, he's a, he's a dark side to John and he keeps well <laughs> hidden, but it comes out in these topics. <laughs> it really no, does. It's, uh, odd enough, the, the, the witches in Scotland and James VI and, and first, it's, it's odd. It's, a, it's, it's sort of, it's in the ether at the moment. Uh, I, mm. I do a show, a stand up show um, called Me, Macbeth and I, and it, it comes into that. Uh, this is the minor one but Lucy Worsley has done a radio programme about it a television programme about it and and um, and here's you with your podcast and as I think you mentioned they, there was a, an apology granted to the the convicted witches uh, by the Scottish government saying well, well we'll let you off that because you, you didn't actually commit a crime you were just tortured into admitting uh, some supernatural power that uh, formed Ooh. the basis of a witchcraft trial and so it's, it's it's obviously a thing at the moment but uh, and in any point, anything you discuss in a historical context, there's always something, as you say, relatable to today. Um, and uh, you can say, oh, that's the way women are always treated, or this is uh, the, the, how the people in power treat people who are not in power, or these are the clash of nationalities. And they, uh, yeah, they do resonate with the, with the modern world as well. Before this parliament right now is a petition demanding a pardon for the more than 4,000 people in Scotland, the vast majority of them women, accused 
and in many cases convicted and executed for being witches under the Witchcraft Act of 1563. And so today on International Women's Day, as First Minister on behalf of the Scottish Government, I am choosing to acknowledge that egregious historic injustice and extend a formal posthumous apology to all those accused, convicted, vilified or executed under the Witchcraft Act 1563. Let's go on to your third wonder, which is uh, uh, one that I have a question mark against. I wonder why you have selected this. <laughs> I thought you might have a question mark against this one. My third wonder is concrete. Um, I, I'm, concrete. I, concrete, as in the building mm. material, uh, you know, highly popular in the mid to late 20th century. Um, and I, I have a mild obsession with concrete. So I, I said concrete because it encompasses a lot of things. I'm so it's sort of slightly linked to my uh, love of, of modern history and the Cold War era and things like that. So I'm quite obsessed with nuclear bunkers. Um, I got interested in learning about Cold War defence stuff um, a few years ago, and, and so in the intervening years, I've visited quite a lot of uh, Cold War era nuclear bunkers in the in the uk um but this is my engagement ring um which is a square of concrete i don't know if you can see that sort of set in silver um when my husband yeah. proposed to me he knew I, i'm not a sort of fussy jewelry girl i don't like um you know you could buy me diamonds but i probably would a i i, I just wouldn't feel comfortable wearing them they're not very me and b i lose things all the time and you know Losing a diamond is quite traumatic. So, yes. so I've got this bit. Of, and then our wedding rings, which you can't really see very clearly on here, but our wedding rings are also made of concrete. And the um, aggregate used for them, because we live in Brighton, is uh, pebbles from Brighton Beach. So we went and picked some pebbles, some lovely colourful okay. pebbles, and then we had the concrete rings made out of them. And they're sort of set in titanium. So my obsession with concrete is quite yeah. um, extreme. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Oh, oh well, absolutely. You've definitely you've proved your <laughs> point here. But but is is this something that it's quite easy to do? Are there lots of places that say concrete rings made here, or or did you have to specially commission this and persuade somebody to make it? We actually found a, a place. It was um, in Boston, in Massachusetts, that that make concrete wedding rings. Um, so I just sort of Googled it, thinking it was something we wouldn't be able to find, and there they were. And they were, um, yeah, they, they were just beautiful. So we uh, we commissioned those. My husband, the engagement ring. I'm not sure where he got that from, but um, yeah, that that he found. And then yeah, we commissioned Listen, the wedding listeners ring. Listeners to this podcast can't see. Uh, what I can see uh, vaguely <laughs> being waved in front of the camera for me. But it looks like quite a substantial ring, that concrete ring, the one set in in silver. Uh, mm. So, it, I mean, I know all rings can be used like that, but it it's, could kind of be a knuckle duster, really, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to cross you me, would you? somebody with that. <laughs> Absolutely. You meet no, me in a dark no, alley at night. Not. I think I'm... <laughs> yeah. So far, I haven't used so, it for those purposes. Let, let me just understand. My researchers have got this far, which is not very far. Concrete <laughs> is the second most used substance in the world after water. So it's so there's a lot being made of it. And mm. that's just that probably those statistics don't even include your rings that have been made <laughs> out of it. So they may have put it above water now, <laughs> for all I know. Um, so, But your interest comes from this. Uh, it's... 
nuclear bomb shelters. Yeah, no, kind of. I, I think I think it's a mix of. It started as a sort of nostalgia thing, you know. I think I grew up in the seventies and eighties with, um, you know, a lot of new concrete buildings coming up, and and they get a lot of bad press, brutalist architecture. But I I sort of love it because I have that nostalgia of growing up around it. And um, in fact, I, I recorded yeah. um, an episode of Mastermind recently, Celebrity Mastermind, and my specialist subject was brutalist architecture. So um, it's stuff that really... Oh, wow. Yeah, I love the, you know, I loved it, the National Theatre and, um, you know, Barbican, although that's sort of acceptable middle-class face of brutalism, I know, but Trellick Tower and all of those things that get such bad press that are only now yeah. with, with time, you know getting listed and getting seen as having historical significance and value and, and, and being part of that whole modernist movement of the 20th century. Um, and I, I think they're beautiful. And I, you know, there's obviously, there's fewer concrete structures now because there's a big environmental problem with using concrete as a building material. And so those, you know, that short, relatively short period of time in the 20th century when all those concrete buildings were going up, they're something I think we should preserve. They're an important part of our post-war history, you know. Okay, yes. Well, the, my other fact about it is the, uh, uh, the production of cement to, that goes into concrete is, leads to 8% of global emissions. So it's quite a, quite mm. a serious contributor to global warming. Um, I suppose when it's made into buildings, you say it's, a, it's brutalist and some people like that stark look. Do you think it weathers well? You know, a stone building tends to sort of get a bit of a patina as the years go by, but concrete sometimes just looks sort of a bit greyer. Yeah, I mean, it depends on, on how they've done it, really. So you have different types of ways they've used it. So, for example, at the Barbican, I think it's weathered quite well because they um, they hammered it, they bush-hammered all the buildings there to bring the aggregate forward, so it always had that texture. And I think the textured concrete weathers a bit better than the smooth concrete the sort of precast buildings maybe that um can look a bit weather beaten but then you know i look weather beaten as i get older i don't necessarily find that a bad thing and i i think we're sort of you know we think our, our buildings need to be beautiful not functional and i think there's room for both um and and like i said like you said that they're environmentally a problem now they realize concrete buildings and so there's just this they're just this little window of time where they were really popular and I think that should be preserved. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, 
Number four, what's your fourth one? Well, I know what your fourth one It's radio, uh, which mm. um, makes, I suppose, more sense because you make radio programmes. Presumably you listen to radio programmes. But is that why, as a listener or a maker, uh, that you've put radio on the list? Both, really, Clive. So I, you know, grew up with radio being a huge part of my life. My dad absolutely loved radio comedy. He loved the goons. He, lo- I grew up listening to the news quiz with my dad. Um, you know, he just really loved, and the radio was always on in our house. Um, and my mum listened to the Archers, and I still listen to the mm. Archers to this day. It was when I went to university. I would never have told anyone that I listened to the Archers. I used to sneak off back to my rooms at seven o'clock to listen to the Archers because it was just like getting a little hug from home. It was, you know, but of course now in the modern world, I can listen to it on the podcast, in the car or whenever I've got time. Um, And yeah, I've never stopped listening to the Archers. It's been a huge part of my life. And and just having Radio 4, it used to just be on in the house. And the great thing about Radio 4 just being on is you sort of learn things without realising you are. You know, you just learn things by accident, just having it on in the car, having it around the house. And I think the thing I love about radio as opposed to television is that you, you can sort of consume it while you're doing other things. So I've got ADHD. And so I find it very difficult to sit down and watch a television programme without doing anything else at the same time. I can get on with other stuff while the radio's on. And even when I was a kid, I say, I used to spend my Sundays with my dad in the car and we'd always have, he used to listen to Capital Gold in the car. I don't, we used to play sort of 50s and 60s music and and I'd love it. Yeah. And I, and he used to test me on my knowledge of 60s music, you know, who sang this, who produced this, who... And so I think that's why now I quite like quizzing because my dad would just quiz me on all this music that we used to listen to in the car um so it's yeah the radio i just find is a just a medium that i've always loved and always is so important in my life but i um i don't know if you know this about me club but i i have quite severe hearing loss so i wear hearing aids and um i'm mm. always worried that because you know it gets worse it, it degenerates the sort of hearing loss that i have that one day you know i might not be able to enjoy the radio anymore and um, that's quite a sad, mm. you know, thing to think about. Um, yeah. But having now that I get to make radio programs, so the news quiz, for example, like I say, I grew up listening to that with my dad, and the the fact that I got to host a series of it and you know be a panelist on it, and it's stuff that I know my dad would be so proud of, and it's something I hope they always ask me to do because it was the only job in comedy that I got really excited about when it was offered to me when I. I, in 2011, I won the, um, it was a BBC New Comedy Award, and I did an interview with the magazine, and they said, what's your comedy ambition? You know, and I said, to be on the news quiz. That was all I wanted to do, was be on the news quiz. And um, and Victoria Lloyd was the producer at the time, and she read this interview I'd done, and she contacted me and said, would you like to come and do a day's writing on it? Which I couldn't believe my luck. Because again, to me at that time, you know, I was 34, I come from a very working class Kent background, People like me didn't get invited to come in and write on a Radio 4 programme, you know, out of nowhere. That just didn't happen. And so I, I, I didn't know the way in. I didn't know about these things. And so um, it, mm. that was such a big moment in my career when I got to write on it. And then I got asked, you know, further down the line to be a panellist. And then in 2020, I got to host a series. So, um, yeah, it's just a huge part of my life. Well, I'm, uh, I, th- I think it's a very good... Uh, I mean, I appear on the radio myself, so I can scarcely not uh, applaud uh, go, go for the radio. But I, I suppose 
some people listening to this may say, well, there's two things they might ask, well, I'm going to ask. One is, what about television? Um, to, to be on the radio is great. And I, I, I agree, being on the news crew is uh, a great thing. But you do sort of similar programmes on television where you can be seen, you probably reach a bigger audience, it's a higher profile. I've, I venture to suggest it's more money as well. Uh, d d does your... Just, is radio like your first love that you just can't get over, but even though you might have moved on to a, a, a richer companion? I, I don't extend this idea too, too far, but, but you know what I mean. Does, does television yeah. not have the same sentimental appeal? Exactly that. I think for me, I think, you know, I did grow up watching television, but there's... Um... The radio will always have a special place in my heart. But unfortunately, as you know, as well as I do, Clive, that, you know, yes, you make mm. more money in television and we've all got bills to pay. Um, and also that profile thing. Yes. You know, as a stand-up comedian, the most important thing in my career is touring. I love being on tour with my shows. And, you know, in order to tour shows, you need an audience. And in order to get an audience, people need to know who you are. And so that's why doing TV yeah. shows is important because more people watch TV than listen to the radio. That's just the numbers game. Now, more people who go out to see shows watch television. Mm. The News Chris has a loyal audience, but they don't, they aren't all the type or even age of person who's going to go down to the um, their local stadium uh, to book mm. to see one of your. Oh, I love that you uh, think that tours. I'd be bothering any local stadiums, Clive. That's <laughs> luckily for me. <laughs> what people who listen to the news quiz do yeah. tend to go to their lo local art centre. So that's more my. Yeah. <laughs> where I'm, okay. Um, where I'm aiming for, really. But the thing I love about radio as well over TV is I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing or brushing my hair or you know people are only commenting on what you're saying. As a stand-up comic, I find it. Really, as a woman on TV, even though my job is a, you know, essentially a clown, I still get comments on my looks. I get comments on what I'm wearing. I get comments on whether I've lost weight or not. You know, whether I've put weight on. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of that stuff that you just get bombarded with. You know, men get it as well, but particularly as a woman on TV, they're more focused on what I look like than what I'm saying. Whereas on the radio, I don't have that issue. It's just on what I'm saying. And that, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, is my my job's words, not looks. <laughs> no, I, I I I understand what you're saying, but where are you getting those comments? Are this is this is this because of the you know Twitter and other social media that pe people might have thought all these sort of things years and years ago, but apart from let's say one reviewer every now and then, you probably didn't need to know, or mm. there was no way of knowing what people were saying. But is is this a function of our uh, interconnected age? Absolutely. It's Twitter. It's whatever, you know, and I, I'm not, you know, I don't go looking for what people are saying about me on Twitter because that way madness lies, you know, and you have to just ignore it and you have to mm. not engage it. Because like you said, people obviously thought those things about people on telly in the past, but they didn't have a way to directly tell that person what they thought of them. And now people do, you know, and they yes. will tag you in a tweet. So to make sure that you see it. And I've got a pretty thick skin, Clive, most of the time. But some days, if you're having a bit of a wobbly day or you're not feeling 100%, you know, and you suddenly someone's yeah. saying something awful about the way you look or, you know, things that you've already got insecurities about, it can affect you. You're just a human being. And I think people forget that you're a human being at the end of those tweets, you know. And they think they... People extrapolate from mm. jokes that you make and things that you say on television and they think they know who you are as an entire person and what you're like and what your opinions are on everything and what your politics are on everything. And the fact is they don't know anything about me or what I'm like and, and what sort of person I am. So 
it can be really hurtful mm. when you see that stuff, you know, and you ignore it most of the time. And some days it, it just gets to you. But that's the world we're in now, unfortunately. Right. Well, um, I, I was going to message as I suppose, slightly more flippant. Well, I don't know. It's a slightly different question. I was just wondering, here we are talking on a podcast. We've been talking about your podcast you do with John O'Farrell. Uh, do you think the existence of these sorts of things may undermine radio? Are we are we two radio lovers here talking uh, in, in using a medium or a way of doing it that might eventually sort of death knell to things like specifically Radio 4, mm. which is lots of constructed programmes, which takes a little bit more expense to make than um than other forms of radio yeah maybe maybe we're part of the problem um when it comes to radio i, I mean i think mm. that the thing with with something like radio 4 is that randomness of it is that you know if you're listening to podcasts you're choosing what podcast you want to listen to which is great um you know so you go what am i interested in i'll find a podcast about that whereas if you just have the radio on in the house all day you might end up listening to programmes you wouldn't necessarily have chosen to listen to, but actually you really get something out of it. And I, I sort of miss that randomness. And it's the same with music now. You know, I find myself just because of Spotify and because of being able to listen to, you know, music really easily, I very rarely go searching for new things now. I just know what I like and I listen to it. And I, I was thinking about that the other day, about how I miss yeah. just having the radio on and going, oh, I like this song, what's this band? Oh, I'll go and search out more of stuff they've done you know and so that's why i think radio is important for serving you up things that you might not have realized you wanted um so i hope it stays and i hope we don't um yeah we're not part of the problem there <laughs> in this program we'll be looking back at 40 glorious years of the news quiz a program that in its time has seen seven prime ministers and seven presidents of the united states and didn't in all honesty think very much of any of them this is i mean <laughs> All politicians lose elections from time to time, but the Conservatives, two years in a row, have lost an election they didn't even need to have. <laughs> the next leader will just decide, let's have a referendum on whether we should change our national language to Danish. <laughs> oh, no, we've lost it! OK, uh, very good. Angela, let's go on to your fifth wonder, though, if we may. My fifth wonder is uh, The Muppets, as in Jim Henson's creations. Um, I just think The Muppet Show was the perfect family entertainment TV show. It was such a part of my childhood. My whole family would sit and watch The Muppet Show on a Saturday evening and it had something for it. Like, kids could enjoy it because it's big puppets Adults could enjoy it because there were lots of little in-jokes in it for the grown-ups. And it was just beautifully done. You know, who doesn't love the love story of Kermit and Miss Piggy? Who doesn't love that Jim Henson world that when you're in it, you just completely don't question anything about the fact that they're big, you know, made of felt and have ping-pong balls for eyes. And it's just a beautiful world that I, I wish I could live in. Well, you are you are living in it. <laughs> I am, I am. <laughs> but the Muppets is a is a sort of old fashioned an old fashioned variety show, uh, but in puppet form, broadcast and getting in all sorts of other things. Well, that's your life, isn't it? You're you're an old fashioned so. variety entertainer, getting involved in radio, podcast, television. Uh, on stage, touring. That, that is your life. You are a Muppet. I, is what I I oh, you just made my day. I am a Muppet. I am. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they're so beautifully um, 
emotive Muppets as well. For for puppets, which you know the the people that operate them are so clever that you can. You know, I've cried at Muppet films. I've the first song I remember that ever made me cry was when I was little, and it was um, Kermit's nephew Robin singing "Halfway Down the Stairs." You know, the A.A. Milne thing, and they oh, did yes. a, that version of that. Yeah. I, can remember, I was only little when I first heard it, and I remember it making me cry and thinking, "What is this? How is music making me cry? This melancholy sort of feeling." Um, and it was just so beautifully done, just little Robin sitting on the stairs, singing the song. And it's simple but mm. so effective. Yeah, and the the Muppets Christmas Carol is one of the great versions of uh, a Dickens novel ever committed to celluloid. Absolutely. Who Every Christmas that comes out, and it's just so well done. So, And all the Muppet films are great. Um, we had, in fact, we had for the first dance at our wedding, we had uh, Kermit the Frog singing... Rainbow Connection from the Muppet movie. That was our first dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I can only admire you for the commitment that you have to your wonders. Some people do this podcast with them. They just come the first seven things that come to their head. Others <laughs> go right back into their childhood and their emotions. Fine. But you've gone a stage beyond, one step beyond. You've been living your your wonders. In, in deep, you're wearing a bit of concrete. <laughs> <laughs> you've used the Muppet song. You, you've, it's extraordinary. Uh, um, all right. Uh, any particular Muppet character that you either identify with or think is particularly well done? Or I mean, you've obviously mentioned Kermit. He's kind of the the ringmaster, the star. But are there yeah. others there that you think, I, oh, that's such a good observation? I do love Kermit because Kermit's us, isn't he? Kermit's the audience in this crazy Muppet world. He's the, our sort of connection mm. to it. But I think for me, it always has to be Fozzie Bear. The, I mean, he's a stand-up comedian, Fozzie Bear. Oh, right. Um, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I remember when I was little, I bought my dad um, a little Fozzie Bear toy um, that he kept his whole life yeah. and I've got it now. And it's just a fuzzy bear, little plastic fuzzy bear. And uh, he's sort of stood at a microphone and he's got his arms held out wide. And it just says, it's no joke, dad, I love you this much. It's what it says underneath it. And so fuzzy bear was always our favorite, me and my dad, when I was growing up. And so maybe that's, you know, my inspiration. Maybe that's why I'm a stand-up comic. Time for fun with Fuzzy Bear. Here's some jokes from everywhere. Hey, 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 it's that silly bear. It's time for the audience to go elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, If you don't mind, I'll do the jokes. We don't mind, but when are you going to do them? (laughs) All right, now look, we're going to move on to your sixth wonder, if we may. (laughs) Okay, so my sixth wonder is... Other people's babies, Clive. And the other people's in that is the important bit because I don't have any babies of yeah. my own. So I don't want people to think, oh, she loves other people's children more than her own. I am voluntarily child free. I'm 45. Um, so I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I always say my reproductive system now is like an Asda on an Easter Monday. There's some eggs left, but they're the rubbish ones. So, you know, I don't think that's going to change. Um, but People think that when you're voluntarily childless that you don't like children. Mm. And that's not true. I love babies. I um, I love holding babies. I love smelling babies. I think babies are brilliant. Um, and so, 
you know, friends think that I don't want to see their babies or I don't want to hear about their babies just because I haven't got any. But it's not true. Babies are the future. They're brilliant. And yeah. um, I just made a very conscious choice in my life that motherhood wasn't for me. Um, you know, I, I, I never had that calling to be a mother. It ne- and people used to say to me, oh, when you get older, it'll come. Well, I'm mm. 45 now and it never came. Um, I, you know, I, I understand biological urges that people have. It's just mine have all been for carbs, not for babies. So, um, and, and people make lots of assumptions about couples that have chosen not to have children. And they really upset me because there's an assumption that we're somehow selfish and that's why we haven't chosen to have children or we lack empathy and we don't care about other human beings and things like that. And I, I find that really bizarre because as far as I see it, I, I do love other human beings. I do care about the planet and, and people. And, you know, I, before I became a stand-up comedian, I worked in social care and healthcare professions. You know, I do have empathy is something I have, but I don't feel that that comes from just having created something with your own genes. You know, I'm more suspicious of this idea that you can't have empathy for other human beings until you've created one. Mm. Well, I said, well, how does that make me the selfish person then in that you only started caring about other people when you've made one with, you know, your genetic makeup? Um, Mm. And this whole idea that we can't be compassionate as non-parents is great. Piers Morgan's got children, you know? (laughs) It doesn't work like that. Some people are compassionate, some people aren't. That's... And and there's a good evolutionary argument for not having children. You know, in old, in ancient human um, uh, communities or, or sort of, you know, the first human communities, if you like, when we're wandering the savannah, childless people were very important because if everybody had children, no one was gathering the food. No one was, you know, it's that whole takes a village to raise a child. You needed childless people within your community. So this idea that women who don't want children are somehow, you know, not normal or unnatural is rubbish because we're just that those ancient feelings within us have as much validity as those ancient feelings within people that want to have children. We, but for some reason we're sort of snubbed and shunned and looked at like we're not real women and not real useful human beings because we haven't procreated. Um, and that's something that really upsets me because I, you know, I don't hate children. I don't, I'm not, I, I just, it wasn't for me. Um, and and my family's, I've got a, a family with a Catholic background. I've got 41 first cousins. They don't, I don't need to procreate, you know, this idea no. that um, there's enough of us, there's enough of my genes out there, <laughs> like no. I don't need to. And and often the people that get most angry, I think, about a woman who's chosen not to be a mother are the same people who are also angry about things like high levels of immigration. And, you know, it's that same. And I find that bizarre because I think, well, are we full up or aren't we? You know, pick a yeah. team. Because if you think that we're too full up to, to allow immigrants in, yet you think I should be having children, then that doesn't add up, does it? You know, um, so, so there's this whole narrative about what being a woman is. Well, I think in, in world terms, I think we've got a, enough people, you know, there's it's, it's something approaching 8 billion now. So I yeah. don't think there's a uh, there's a duty or any obligation to have children if you don't want to. Uh, I, t- I try and obey two rules in relation to this. One, never say to a woman, oh, uh, are you pregnant then? Because she looks as though she might be pregnant. You never say that because you might be right a hundred times in a row, but the hundred and first time, 
uh, you're going to cause offence. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is I would never say to somebody, man or woman, oh, why don't you have children then? Because there's a whole heap of, they, if they want to tell you, they'll, they'll tell you. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, they, they're desperate to have a child and they can't. Mm. Sometimes they're desperate not to have a child and they don't want to be asked about it. So uh, mm. the only thing I would query here is that uh, um, most people end up finding other people's babies rather boring. Uh, they're happy to show <laughs> pictures of their children, but they don't want to look at anybody else's. So that's quite noble of you, in a way, to elevate other people's babies to uh, this status of, of a wonder, uh, and or even to be prepared to look at them and go, oh yes, that one, your child is, in fact, I would think probably the most beautiful <laughs> baby in the world. It hadn't occurred to me until now that there were such levels of difference. But yes, yours is clearly the most beautiful. And you have to say that to each and every person who shows you their photographs. See, I'm, I'm quite happy with that arrangement. But I think I would say that, that the key word is babies, because once they're sort of running around and can talk back, I'm not so interested then. I like babies because, oh, you know, right. you can cuddle them and then you put them down. They don't move. Um, that, that, that's the state, my yes. favourite stage of childhood, I think. And I do, I've got friends who have kids and I do love my friends' kids and I take them out and I treat them and I spoil them and I babysit them and I do love the kids that are close to me. But, you know, big groups of children en masse, I, I, mm. I find that difficult, you know. It's like... I have a real problem with okay. sort of big groups of performing children, you know, singing, dancing. I'm sure if your child is in there singing, then that's beautiful. But I'll give that a miss if that's all right. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. Well, that's that's perhaps something you're spared, the school concerts, when every child has to do something, every child has to be in the chorus, whether oh. they want to be there or not, whether they can hold a tune or not. So, uh, So babies you like... Mm-hmm. Not so keen on children. What's the next age up than your that you you kick back in when they're twenty five or grumpy teenager? Thirty five. What's what's the? <laughs> I think for me it's the point where you don't have to mind your language too much around them anymore. You know when you don't sort of fourteen, fifteen when they know oh. what's what and you can have a proper adult conversation with them. Then that sort of kicks back in. Then they're fun right. again, you know. But there's okay. that, that bit where they're impressionable. I find that too much pressure on me to not, you know, ruin their lives. OK. Yeah. All right. That was your sixth wonder. Other people's babies. Uh, and, uh, and again, a slightly surprising one to end on your seventh wonder. So my seventh wonder is a place uh, called Newfoundland, which if people don't know where Newfoundland is, it's a little island just off the east of Canada. And Newfoundland is, um, it's where my mum's family are from. So my granddad was born uh, and and brought up in Newfoundland. Yeah. And so I have this um, family connection with Newfoundland that's been there obviously my whole life. And my granddad, I was quite young when he died, um, but he, um, my mum is one of nine children and they were brought up over here in Kent. And my granddad, who came from Newfoundland, he fought with the um, Newfoundland regiment. So he came over here during the war, met my grandmother. They fell in love in Kent. They went back to Newfoundland. And my my grandmother went back to Newfoundland on a troop ship after World War Two. She was eight months pregnant. They were married and she did that voyage back to Newfoundland and arrived, I think, in 1945, 1946, arrived back there in the middle of winter and she was a girl from Kent in a Newfoundland winter where it's, you know, minus 20 degrees, there's snow up to the top of your house. And this is in the forties. You didn't have all the mod cons to deal with that they have today. And I think it's fair to say it was a bit of a shell shock for this woman from Kent. So they stayed there a couple of years and then they came back again. Mm. 
and raised their family in Kent because my grandmother just got too homesick. They raised their family in Kent and they it was a very, uh, they were in a, a council house in a place called Swanley in Kent. They had nine children in a three bedroom council house. And so they didn't ever have money to go back. My granddad never got to go back to Newfoundland. And so growing up, there was this sort of place that was talked about by my grandparents and my family uh, that was, it, I mean, it might as well have been Mars for how inaccessible it was to us growing up. You know, I, we were, I didn't even go to on holiday to Europe with my family, let alone go somewhere transatlantic. You know, we had camping holidays Mm. Yeah, 20 miles from where we lived that was our holidays when I was growing up or pontins or you know things like that you went to another part of you went to another part of Kent absolutely your... we did <laughs> we'd go down to Dimchurch you know or we'd go to that's what you did and then um, so there was just this place full of these relatives that we never met and we never saw and this magical place that I could only imagine and I'd seen photographs of and this snowy wonderland and things and occasionally one of my Newfoundland relatives would come and visit us in Kent and it was just like royalty coming to we were so excited and their accents were so crazy because I don't know if you've heard a Newfoundland accent if you've um maybe if you've watched Come From Away the musical which is set in Newfoundland it's this sort of beautiful Irish sounding everyone thought my granddad was Irish when they heard him speak and so it's so exotic that we were related to these people but it was so far away and it's only as we've become adults that suddenly getting to Newfoundland was um, you know something we could afford to do and and so as an adult I've I've been several times and I've made this connection with my cousins and my family in Newfoundland that I never oh, had right. growing up and it's such an incredible beautiful place Newfoundland it's it's the size of England and Wales but only half a million people live there it's very rugged coastline it's fishing communities it's beautiful little towns on bays and um, about six seven years ago I took my husband there for the first time. We went to uh, a little town called Ship Harbour. And Ship Harbour is where um, my granddad was born. And it's also, it's quite famous Ship Harbour because it's where um, Churchill and Roosevelt signed the uh, North Atlantic Treaty. The boat came into, because obviously it's a midpoint in the Atlantic, and the boat came into harbour mm. at Ship Harbour and that's where they signed it. So it's got this historical significance. And I took my husband there and we went with my cousin Dot and we visited. And it's a population ship harbour of about 200 people, tiny little village. And out of those 200 people, there are just two surnames. <laughs> and and those two surnames are it's Griffiths, which was my granddad's surname, and Griffin. So I think it's fair to say <laughs> not much of a gene pool in the area. Yeah. And we were sort of walking around and we got talking to a guy on the street and we just got chatting and I got excited. I said, oh, I think that makes you my cousin. And he said, we're all cousins here. <laughs> I thought, oh yeah, I suppose we are. Um, yes. And it was just sort of walking around this town where everyone looked a little bit like us. You know, everyone, yeah. <laughs> it's like walking through a hall of mirrors. Um Right. So, but it's just, it's an incredible place and such a hospitable, like the people there are so welcoming and the food is, I mean, I, I think that my love of sort of carbs and sugary food is because of my Newfoundland genetics. You know, in Newfoundland, you, you ate salt and fat and sugar to keep you going through the winters, you know, and I think I've got those genes, but I, I had them in Kent you know, where they didn't yes. <laughs> really fulfil the purpose. Um, and also probably explains why I love the sea so much. It's very much, you know, the communities oh, are all based on the coast. Yes. It's all fishing communities. And 
this sort of and, and it's just it's an incredible place and 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 people don't really know about it they don't you know from from britain certainly people don't tend to go on holiday to newfoundland well as as you say uh the 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 musical Come From Away uh, sort of illustrates a lot of those things. I think they, they were, I've seen the show, and they're doing, you know, a Newfoundland accent because people think, well, that's a strange accent you're doing. That's a bit weird. You're trying to do Canadian and failing. Uh, but it's a bit Irish, a bit Scottish, yeah. a bit West Country English, a bit this and that. But uh, still a slightly unusual thing for somebody from Newfoundland to end up married to a sex shop owner in Kent and uh, from a, uh, you know, a, a Catholic background, a religious background, maybe. Um, it, it, it all sounds a bit of a strange combination of things to have, to have gone on. I suppose that was, came from the mixing up of wartime and bringing people together and refreshing the gene pool in that way. Absolutely. I mean, this, this, the family story is that apparently, so when my granddad was stationed in a place called Crocken Hill in Kent, where he was staying during the war, and um, he was out one day and he split his trousers. And my grandmother's brother was with him and said, oh, my sister will sew those for you. And so they went back to the house and, and my grandmother sewed up his split trousers and that's how they met. So we always say, you know, if my granddad hadn't split his trousers on that day, none of us would be yeah. here. Um, and I love those sort of sliding doors moments, you know, that this yes. man from Newfoundland split his trousers and now I'm here talking to Clive Anderson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe your grandfather was uh, cleverer than you allow and he was uh, arranging to split his trousers every now and then on the off chance, uh, a comely... <laughs> <laughs> local girl would uh, would get involved look we've we've wildly overrun our time there's been a they've been a brilliant selection of uh, uh, wonders if I may say so because some looked a bit of you know going off in weird directions and others uh, you know, a bit bit more obvious but they all kind of tie together and uh, you're clearly very much involved in your family and your family background even the sea and um, you know, you know and, and the, your interests seem to all stem in that way and it's, so it's been uh, quite a warming selection of uh, seven wonders if I may say so thank you for sharing them with us I have oh, to choose you. the wonder of wonders from your list of seven the one which struck me as particularly wonderful as you described on the podcast while you were getting so enthusiastic about concrete I thought that'll be great I'll I'll include concrete because it'll be such a, an odd one to be the wonder of wonders but I'm I'm going to appoint myself uh, a slightly an editor of your wonders and I'm going to go for the Muppets but not all the Muppets but I think uh, the Fozzie Bear uh, toy the Fozzie Bear figure uh, that you gave to oh. your father I think encapsulates uh, a lot about what you've been saying about your relationship with him and the rest of your family and comedy and performing and everything else so uh, so it brought a tear to my eye uh, the way that you were uh, told Aww. us about that so I'm going to make the fuzzy bear muppet figure shall we call it a figure the fuzzy bear muppet figure as oh, the uh, wonder of wonders Oh, I'm really pleased with that, Clive. <laughs> oh, good. If you enjoyed listening to My Seven Wonders, it'd be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. Thank you very much for listening. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.